recycling of symbols, which is something that's very fascinating to me in the Bible, and especially in prophecy. There are 340 Old Testament quotations in the New Testament, as well as 2,300 plus suggestion associations in the book of Revelation. There are 620 associations or quotes that tie directly with Daniel and Ezekiel. One of the interesting scholars that lives here in the United States, he's a Baptist, and that's Gregory Beale. He has spent his whole life studying the book of Revelation. Probably the best commentary on the book of Revelation is by Gregory Beale. But tied in with that, he has shown how the book of Revelation is integrally tied with the book of Daniel. <clears throat> God designed it that way, so associations to truths are perceived in a variety of ways to speak to different individuals. God did something else very interesting. He recycled symbols to help explain prophetic meanings. Jeannie, it might help if I had a little water up here, if that would be possible. <clears throat> For instance, Babylon is a major symbol in Daniel and Jeremiah of apostasy against and defiance of God. The word against should be there. In the book of Revelation, it represents apostate Christianity. Medo-Persia represents deliverance from Babylon. Isaiah even discusses who what the, the deliverer would be, and that's Cyrus. Thank you, and that's about 100 years before Cyrus was even born, and that's found in chapters 44 through 46. But Medo-Persia in prophecy also represents the Messiah. Greece, the rough he goat in Daniel 8, symbolizes Satan, the demonic power. It is recycled as the sea beast in Revelation 13, depicted as a leopard, as in Daniel 7, that happens to have the mouth of a lion and the feet of a bear. The Antichrist in the book of Revelation is characterized by many things related, and it's fascinating, to the leopard animal. Each narrative, each story, adds important spiritual dimensions to instruct, warn, and guide. Daniel was specifically told that God would reapply beast symbols in Daniel 7. I've never heard this in a class or in a sermon, but Daniel 7, verse 12, is very important. As for the rest of the beasts, their ruling authority had already been removed though they were permitted to go on living for a time and for a season. We generally think of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome in that sequence. They come and they go in sequence from a historical standpoint. But God says that they are going to be permitted to go on. There is going to be another application of those beasts, and that is very true. The Jewish Publication Society worded the Aramaic in this verse, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and for a time. And we find in Daniel 8 a recycling of those particular beasts in a different way. 
Today, I would like to penetrate into one area of the Old Testament history that is apropos for us today, and that is the recycling of old symbols using the Exodus story. Most are familiar with the amazing way that the people of Israel were delivered from Egypt. Most are cognizant that those 10 plagues revealed how deficient and abysmal the Egyptian gods were to neutralize God's vengeance against wrong. But there are deeper issues. God reuses that plague story in many ways. The Israelites migrated to Egypt when Joseph was a prime minister. It was 17 years before Jacob passed away. God had renamed him Israel. They initially enjoyed Egyptian favor because of Joseph. But as the years passed by, over 400 of them, they were eventually seen as a threat by later kings or pharaohs leading the country. <clears throat> After Moses spent 40 years as a fugitive in Midian, God spoke to him, stating that he wanted to do three different things. One, bring Israelites out of Egypt. They would have been there by 430 years. He would go, he would do it through great judgments. And number three, it would be done in such a way that the Egyptians would know that I am the Lord, the true God, Exodus 7, 1 through 5. God later added to this communique that his judgments would be against the Egyptian gods. Intriguing. This would be a lesson for the Egyptians. It would also teach the secularized Israelites, who in many ways had become sympathetic to a pagan way of life. They still retained their ethnic identity, and I find that to be an amazing and perhaps providential issue. <clears throat> Though some of the plagues were familiar to those ancient people like a scourge of locusts here, they were divinely intensified. God modus operandi is repeated in many, many ways at the end, adapting how he deals with wickedness and apostasy, as we will now discover. The Egyptian plagues before the deliverance drama began, Moses and Aaron were tested by observing the sorcerers and magician's rod supernaturally turning to snakes, just as theirs were. <clears throat> At the end, Satan's minions will perform signs and wonders. We will be tested. There will be a recycling of the things that Moses experienced with us at the end. Pharaoh ordered great work from the Israelites, greater work, and by that Egyptian miracle, these two men began to be mocked. Even the Israelites turned against them for a while, leading Moses to plead for intervention from God. This is an echo of John's warning that the Antichrist powers, apostate powers, would make war with the saints before their deliverance. We will be begging God for intercession also. So what happened to Moses and Aaron? will be happening to us at the very end of time. 
there will be a recycling, a replication of those same humiliating experiences. Now let's look at the different plagues. Number one, waters turned to blood. This was directed at the Nile River, the life and heart of Egyptian commerce. Its crops were irrigated by the Nile and the fields depended on the fertile soil that washed in each year through flooding. It was also a primary highway for commerce and trade. Aaron stretched out his rod and hand over the waters of Egypt, including rivers, ponds, pools of waters, and even the jugs in their houses, and they became blood. Not like blood, but actual blood. This was a disaster for the Egyptians. Even the fish died and the river stank. Water and one source of food, fish, were cut off. This plague mocked several Egyptian gods. Because the Nile was so important, they had a god called Canum, the giver and guardian of the Nile. Happy, the spirit of the Nile, was credited with fertilizing the land every year with its flooding. It also was the god of fish and birds. The god Osiris was the god of the underworld. The Nile was its bloodstream. The goddess of fish, Hatimoth, was also mocked. The Egyptians could, couldn't help but feel abandoned. These gods were dysfunctional. The god of Moses and Aaron was fully in charge. As the Israelites were perplexed and in despair from the extra work, so God's people will be in deep dismay at the very end of time. <clears throat> a point in time will come when the prayers of God's people bring more incense to the altar in heaven. That's Revelation 8, 3, and 4. Those two verses are powerful verses, very important to understand as God's people. There's a lot of hope in those two verses. We will be pleading with God for help, just as Moses did. Then God throws down the coals in judgment on planet Earth. That's chapter 8, verse 5. It's not the censor, which some misunderstand. And the trumpet plagues begin. Of all things, when the second trumpet plague curses occur, one-third of the sea ocean turns to blood. The sea life dies, and the ships in this area are destroyed. Then, with the second vile plague, the whole ocean is turned to blood. Ellen White has only one quotation in her writings related to these trumpet curses that I'm aware of. And this is what she says, and she doesn't use the word trumpets, but we know that it has to relate to that. The time of God's destructive judgments is the time of mercy for those who now have no opportunity to learn what is truth. The seven vile plagues is at a time of mercy. When we reach the seven vile plagues, probation has closed. So these are plagues where we find that mercy still exists. Tenderly will the Lord look upon them. His heart of mercy is touched. His hand is still outstretched to save while the door is closed to those who would not enter. Large numbers will be admitted who in these last days hear the truth 
for the first time. That's a very important quotation in her writings. And those of you that study the trumpets, this is the only quotation that I know of that really apply to the concept of why the trumpets occurred before the vile plagues occurred. We've written the whole book on the seven trumpet. And Marvin Moore, the editor of Signs, at least he used to be, he wrote the first book on the seven last trumpets showing that those seven trumpets really had an end time um, application. So if you ever get a hold of his book, it's a very wonderful book to go through. This is when God begins to answer the cry from God's people of how long, if you're aware of that fifth trumpet, there's mar um, fifth seal, that's when the martyrs occur, and one of the great cry is how long. Lots of difficulties, persecution, and even martyrdom will have occurred to this point. It is like God is saying to the whole world, to the anti-Christian powers, and even Satan, okay, you've been in charge and most successful. Now it is time for me to begin my strange work, Isaiah 28, 20. Incidentally, that cry, how long? That cry is twice mentioned in Daniel, and it's once mentioned in, in, in Revelation and several times in the book of Psalms. The concept of how long, according to Hebrew history, is not for revenge, but it's a cry, God, when are you going to be vindicating your own character, your own love? It seems like Satan is winning. We love you so much, we want you to win. Can you see the dynamics of how God is working? Satan does win at the end for a long time before he finally steps into history. And part of the purpose of that is testing God's people. He tests us and he makes the apostate world feel that they are superior and right, just as Pharaoh did for a while. But the time came to act and when it did, the comparison between the helplessness of man and the power of God became very marked. In the third vile plague, the fresh waters become blood, meaning God is in control of nature, and the wicked sense his wrath. The blood of a lamb on the doorpost became the savior for Israel. The Egyptians were shedding the blood of the Israelites. Blood is given to them in place of their source of water, of life and water. At the end, there are martyrs, the fifth seal, and the harlot named Babylon is drunk with the blood of the saints. God finally gives them blood to drink as part of the curse. So once again, we see this recycling of many of these symbols that we find even back deep in the Old Testament being reused at the end. Plague number two. The second cry comes through Moses and Aaron. Let my people go. Pharaoh refused, and frogs covered the land to their home, into their homes, bedrooms, and kitchens. The frogs didn't just disappear when the plague ended. They died. Frogs were a good omen of the god, goddess, Hegeth. She was the wife of the creator of the world and was the goddess of birth. Other gods were associated with her, none, Kek, and He. Frogs were sacred because they lived in two worlds, land and water. If one even accidentally stepped on one, it was punishable by death in Egypt. 
at the time of Moses. Here their birth rate was out of control. The goddess had yet became a mockery. Avoiding stepping on one was impossible. So they violated their own laws and then stench filled the land. Between the sixth and seventh vile plagues in Revelation, there is an interlude. This is a break within a prophecy that fills in details that occurs during the previous six seals, trumpets, and plagues. John sees three unclean spirits, and here it is, like frogs. They are spirits of devils. They come out of the mouths of the false prophet, apostate Protestantism, the sea beast, Roman Catholicism, and the dragon, spiritualism, mysticism, and the scholars call this the false trinity. The mouth is where one speaks, decrees, condemns, deceives, seduces. Frogs are also slippery and hard to pin down and have increased croaking, many things to say, especially when there is no light. With their deception, false apostate teaching comes. Miracles, just as was predicted by the earth beast in Revelation 13, they are doing signs, Jesus said, that they would deceive many. Deeper meaning at the end of time, God permits Satan to work through his deceptive agents as a last stand in Earth's history. This brings them together, a coalition to make war. In Revelation 16 and 19 discusses that. It is called Armageddon. That is a complex subject we won't deal with. This will be the final demonstration of what Satan is really like. This horror is also associated with the fifth and sixth trumpets. Plague number three, lice. The dust dirt of the land became lice. The god of the earth, Geb, now becomes helpless. In addition, the god Horus, who warded off dangerous creatures, was not available. And Imbotep was the god of healing, was nowhere to be found. The Egyptian priest went through detailed cleansing rituals to be able to serve in their temple. With the lice, they couldn't become clean, so they couldn't perform their saving rituals. Tied with all of this was plague number four. That's flies. That word is actually added in our Bibles. The word is actually swarms. Apparently, another flying insect, and most scholars believe that insect was the dung beetle. The god Kepper was the god of the beetle, or the scarab beetle, as we know it today. This god pushed the sun across the sky. This was a scourge of the beetles. The wind brought these swarms into Egypt, making now the god of the wind, Amun, a mockery. Plague five is another pestilence, a disease on the livestock. A severe pestilence came, especially on the cattle. The creator god, Ta, was represented by a bull, Apis. If any bull died, they mourned it as if it was human, had passed away. A cow was in turn represented by Hather, a female god. With cow-like features, None of these gods protected their herds. Meaning for us today, 
in Revelation 4, 7, the second living creature, some of your Bibles will say a beast, living beast, was a calf or an ox. Those four living creatures in Revelation 4 represent the four lead tribes of the children of Israel. This represented the tribe of Ephraim, who was symbolic of apostate Protestantism. That's a beautiful study to go through Revelation 4 and 5. This tribe was missing in the list of the 144,000. Pestilence will be one of the cursed signs of the end of time in Matthew 24. And here's a thought from Ellen White. Trying times are before us, and this quote represents the time of trouble in general, the little time of trouble. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken, that those things that cannot be shaken may remain. Drought, famine, pestilence, earthquakes, casualties by sea and land will multiply. Life will be unsafe anywhere. We can see that is true in many parts of the world today. In fact, this last week, the US government, the State Department, listed 48 countries that they felt was unsafe for Americans to travel to. So this is a very fascinating dynamic of her mentioning this. Only as the life is hid with Christ in God now, while the angels are holding the four winds, is our opportunity to seek the Lord most earnestly. These issues, though there's a lot of details we're presenting here this morning, these issues really are very highly spiritual to us, an invitation that at all times we are ready with Jesus Christ in our hearts. Then she notes that during Jacob's trouble, what we have seen and heard of the pestilence is but the beginning of what we shall see and hear. Soon the dead and dying will be all around us. From one end of the earth to the other, they will not be lamented. Nor gathered nor burned, but their ill savor will come up from the face of the whole earth. Those only who have the seal of the living God will be sheltered from the storm of wrath that will soon fall on the heads of those who have rejected the truth. Serious times will have come when that occurs. Plague number six boils. From an apparent furnace, fly ash or fine dust, particular matter, particulate, that should say matter and smoke, blew throughout the land where the Egyptians live. Terrible sores and boils broke out on their skin. The Egyptians at times burned their babies to death. They threw their ashes in the air to their gods for healing. Here, ashes created disease. The dust of their ovens produced disease, mocking their gods, Thoth, Nephertim, and Isis. In the first vile plague of Revelation 16, a grievous sore fell on those who had the mark of the beast. This begins to fulfill the promised fourth angel of warning. Come out of her, my people. Why? That ye receive not of her plagues, Revelation 18, 4. 
You see how God is putting all these little pieces together. He's used so many things in the Old Testament, and I'm just in a very simple way here this morning taking these ten plagues of Egypt. But there are so many, many other things in the Old Testament where God recycles these symbols for us today at the very end of time. Plague 7 is an interesting one of hail. This would have been very unusual in this region, but yet it came and all the crops and trees were destroyed. Since this plague originated in the sky, the deity called Nut, the sky god, goddess, was far away. And the god of the air, Shu, didn't stop this storm. Nor did the gods that protected crops, Seth, Nepper, and the ruler of vegetation and life, Osiris. Clothing from the fiber of flax could no longer be made. The fiber from flax was grown in two areas of the world back then, and as far as I know, it's still in those two different areas, and that's around the Nile Delta and around certain spots of the Jordan River in Palestine. That flax is very interesting because it was out of the flax that the fine linen, the Hebrew word for fine linen in the Old Testament is bad, B-A-D. The fine linen is what the priest wore on the Day of Atonement. And we know from Daniel 12 that Daniel is seeing this being above the water. And it says in the Hebrew that this being is totally clothed in bot, in fine linen. So we know just by that alone in Daniel 12 that it's a Day of Atonement imagery that we can understand. The sixth seal and the seventh vile plague occur at the same time, culminating in Christ's coming. What happens at that time? A great earthquake, like throughout the whole world. Ellen White hints that in some of her writings. Islands disappear, chaos in the heavens, signs in the sun, moon, and stars. God's cry, it is done. The fall of Babylon split into three parts. That's verse 19 of Revelation 16, a very crucial text to understand, to understand what happens in the following chapter in 17. And finally, hail. Incidentally, the sun, moon, and stars sign. Adventists have their understanding historically of this, and that's good. But we find that that is recycled after the time of Jacob's trouble. That is very clear in Matthew 24. And once again, there's a symbol that's recycled and we find before Jesus comes, and look at the sixth seal also in Revelation 6, you will see that, that those are signs once again after the time of great tribulation. The wicked have two verbal reactions. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceedingly great. For the great day of his wrath is come, they cry, and who shall be able to stand? They blaspheme God and they cry, who can stand? That fulfills the third angel's message, the wrath of God. And who is able to stand? The answer is given right there in the book of Revelation. It's given in the next chapter, chapter 7, 
It's the 144,000 clear, clearly. It is at this time again that Jesus returns. Plague number eight, the locusts. This could also be seen as pestilence, but they covered the face of the earth and destroyed all the vegetation that remained that wasn't destroyed with the other plagues. The guardian of the fields, Anubis, was off duty. Intriguingly, in the first trumpet, hail mixed with fire and blood fell on the earth, and one-third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass and all these things related to God's decreation at the end. That's a very important concept that we have in the Bible and also in Ellen White's writings. One of the things related to God's wrath at the end of time is a decreation of the world. Man was not honorable as having charge and dominion over the world. And so as everything winds down, there is a decreation. And in the great controversy, we are told that the world when Christ comes will look nearly like it was when? Before the creation. It's a powerful study to understand what goes on. At the very end of time, God is destroying everything that's in this world, including the, his own creation, and of course with everything that is man-made. That is, I think, the second last chapter in the Great Controversy, as I recall. Plague number nine, darkness. This darkness was so dense that it could be felt. Have you ever been in a place where it was so dark you could feel the darkness? When I was a teenager, we lived in Pennsylvania, and there was a cave in Pennsylvania that was a nice spot for tourists to go into. And we went in there once. It was nearby our home. I don't know why we didn't more. But we were in this cave, and it was down 60 feet under the ground. And then the guide turned out all the lights. It was dark, and we could almost feel the darkness because there was absolutely no light. And then the guide struck a match. And that one match, literally, in that kind of darkness, just lit up the whole area where we were at. And we could actually see what the cave was like. This darkness, the Israelites had light, incidentally. I think most of you are aware of that. This darkness mocked the god Ra, the god of the sun. This god was worshipped more than any other. Many pharaohs incorporated this god into their names, like Ramses, Rav, Mizis. Another superior god, often called the king of the gods, was Amon, called the hidden god. When everything failed, he was appealed to. Later, the Egyptians brought together the god, those two gods, Amon and Ra. So in Egyptian literature, often you see those two names that are joined together. Amon, a bull with the sun between its horns. In this ninth plague of darkness, those Egyptian gods were silent. The Egyptian gods were powerless. There's an interesting history, and this may help us to understand some of the Antichrist symbols at the end of time. Alexander the Great was the first powerful leader of the Grecian Empire. 
Those, most of you have probably studied that in your history and then also Adventist prophecy, it's emphasized. That represented Greece, a leopard-like creature and also a rough he-goat, Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. Its empire began with a powerful horn, that Alexander. He took a long journey, and this is something that many people don't know about, but it's on the web. There's a lot of history of this journey on the web. In 332 BC, to a Libyan oasis, he didn't take his whole army. There were only 23 soldiers that he took with him on this journey, and this Libyan oasis is still in existence today. It's called Siwa. There he consulted the oracles of the god of Amman, that bull, where its main temple and priest resided. Alexander was declared by a single priest in that temple that he was a god. From that point on, all Greek coins were cast with his picture with horns on his head, representing the power of the god Amon. I have a coin that's a facsimile of those coins that he struck, and I forgot to bring it this morning to show it to you. But on the coins, in the one side of the coin is Alexander's bust or head, and then he has corns coming out of those, his head, out of his hair. Alexander was declared a god, and Greece, we can find in Daniel 8's prophecy, and also in Revelation 13, is a symbol of the Antichrist a being that wants to become like God. Interesting, isn't it? Alexander wanted to become like God. Lucifer wanted to become like God, Isaiah 14. The rough he-goat of Daniel 8 in ancient Hebrew acted like a god, as do the sea beast of 13 and the harlot of Revelation 17. Revelation borrows these symbols of assumed superiority over the true God as an end-time characteristic of the Antichrist. Alexander came to his end, as will these Antichrist powers. That darkness of the ninth plague is represented by the black horse of the third seal. There is a famine for truth, yet the oil and the wine are operational in some individuals. Remember what it says in that third seal. Do not hurt the oil and the wine. It's a black horse, but there's something going on in a group of individuals in that black horse, and the oil represents the Holy Spirit and the wine, the blood of Jesus Christ. So they're in, inside of Babylon. Those are individuals that are waiting to be called out of the darkness that's there in the black horse. That darkness is also a curse in the fifth vile plague. On the sea of the sea beast, we're not totally sure what that represents in Revelation 16.10. This darkness is against anything blocking the light of truth and, of course, the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness. Plague number 10. The firstborn in Egypt were slain. 
including in Pharaoh's house. There was great a great cry throughout the land. The gods, and I won't go through these lists here, but all were powerless to stay the horrors of this plague. This was the last plague and the one that led Pharaoh to accept defeat. God has called Israel his firstborn among all the nations. Evil powers kept them in bondage until Pharaoh was powerless. In Revelation, the many storylines reveal war against the saints, the war against the Lamb. They will be winning for a while, and that is a problem that we must understand as God's people. The saints will appear to be defeated. We will appear like Satan is winning. We will be crying out like Moses for intervention from God. That is part of the final plan at the end. So the great contrast between Christ and his power and Satan and his power becomes exceedingly clear to planet Earth and also to the universe. Evil powers kept them in bondage. That will keep a lot of God's people in bondage until the very end, and then God steps in to do his strange act, and that begins with the seven trumpets. But in many prophecies, the Antichrist power will eventually be defeated and come to its end, and this is intriguing to me, without human interference. As they become powerless, God again will be seen as the final victor. The wonder of wonders. Daniel 12.1 says that there will be deliverance of those who are written in the book. The book of life is understood. That's an incredible verse to study in Daniel 12.1. It's kind of a culmination of the activity of the Antichrist in Daniel 11, which begins in verse 30, maybe 29, verse 30 through 45. The horrors of the Antichrist are described in those verses as the final rise of the papal power. And then finally, when things seem to be going all wrong for God's people, and it does say God's people will be evangelizing the world in that time in scattered verses through chapter 11. But finally, the point comes. It says the Antichrist comes to its end in verse 45. And then verse 1 of Revelation, Daniel 12 is really a continuation of chapter 11. Verse 1 says Michael stands up. When he stands up, that means there's a transition in what Christ is doing in heaven. Something changes. When someone sits on a throne, that's a transition. When once someone stands up in prophecy, that's another transition. Michael stands up. Probation has closed. And then we find the great time of Jacob's trouble occurs. And our understanding, and Ellen White's understanding, is that that time of Jacob's trouble is very, very brief. We have some reason to believe it's probably going to be a little over a month but that's a very special study in itself. And during that time, God's wrath will come in a very profound way and clearly 
planet Earth, those that are still wicked and remaining alive, will begin to realize who God really is at that point. Fascinating to me in Revelation 7 shows <clears throat> that there will be a group too large to count around the throne who went through that great tribulation. I find great comfort in that. The 144,000 aren't a literal, literal number. Even Ellen White describes that if you look at the right references. But here's 144,000 tied in with the kingdom number. But those that are around the throne, to me, is the final hope for you and I, for all those who go through this time of trouble, the number around that throne who are translated, who go through that particular time of horrors, can't be counted. It's too great of a number. How many people will be translated through that time? I don't know. Hundreds of thousands? Maybe millions? Wouldn't that be a wonderful thought if there were millions? They come in at the last hour. Revelation 14, 14 says that the 144,000 were redeemed as the first fruits unto God and the Lamb, like his firstborn. Those around the throne have white robes, it says in Revelation 7, verse 14. And it says that those robes are white because they were washed in a detergent that cleanses and purifies and washes away sin. And that detergent is what? The blood of the lamb. Beautiful thoughts, beautiful symbolism that we can carry over from the time of Passover and the time of the Israelites right to the very end of time. He wants us to have white robes washed in the blood of the lamb. He wants us to be covered with his righteousness. No matter how difficult life becomes at the end, you will win with Jesus Christ. Pray that the blood will be sprinkled on the doorpost of each one of our hearts. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you've worked out truth in such a marvelous way that we can take lessons of the past and see that they apply to the present and to the future. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you'll take each one of our hearts here this morning, that the blood of Jesus Christ will come in and cleanse, that your Holy Spirit will come in and change and transform, that we might step closer and closer to the eternity that you have set aside for us. Father, we appreciate you. We appreciate Jesus and all that he's done for us. And I pray that that will not be just a simple fact to understand, but a heart-changing passion for us to use so we can be friends with you forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.